So if you'll open your Bible to uh, Matthew chapter uh, 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read now, uh, for I think the fourth time, the Beatitudes. And uh, I feel like I need, uh, I don't think we will have this, but I, I feel like I need months in the Beatitudes to see them form my heart. Uh, the way they clearly were intended to uh, by God. And I see them doing a work in my own heart, and I hope you're seeing them do a work in your heart as well. And if you haven't seen that, we'll pray the Lord will just deepen his work in our hearts through our, his word of this morning. So let me read to you Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 1. And I'll read all the way through verse 16. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. It's our only hope. Our only hope to grow in grace, our only hope for me to shepherd this people, our only hope to encourage one another, but our only hope for the salvation of the lost, our only hope to have a light in the dark places of this world that you place many of us in. Lord, we plead with you to speak by your word so that it's clear that what we're hearing is not the words of man, but the words of God, which they really are. And Lord God, we pray that as we see Jesus in your word, we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Lord, we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been looking for a number of weeks at the Beatitudes, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And what we're looking at when we look at the Beatitudes is we're really looking at, in the words of one preacher, the character of a Christian man or the character of a Christian person. It's, we're really looking at the heart of true Christianity, the heart of what a true Christian 
is. And, and the first thing you notice when you just begin to survey the Beatitudes for the first time is that you recognize that you're dealing with the fact that the Christianity is not simply a, a list of actions we can pile onto our lives. You simply can't do Christian things and be a Christian. You, you, you simply can't just embrace a code of ethics or embrace a way of life and, and be a Christian. Christianity is not at all about painting something on top of yourself, but rather the, what we're, what's being described to us here in the Beatitudes is really something that's internal, something that becomes the core of who you are, the center of your being. Christianity is not, at the end of the day, people acting like they're poor in spirit. When you get that, you get the Dickens character, Uriah Heep, who's walking around talking about how awfully humble he is all the time, and it strikes everyone as just how proud and self-absorbed he is every time he talks about how deeply humble he is. Christianity really creates people who actually are poor in spirit. They actually do mourn over their sin. They're not like the professional mourners who were hired in Jesus' day. Uh, who, or if you've ever been around um, funeral homes and you sort of see uh, those who work there and often there's just a sense in which they've learned how to handle themselves in a demure way. They've learned how to handle themselves around death. But they're having office banter and office conversation around death just like anywhere else. They're not affected by each and every individual death many of the time. But Christianity actually is creating internal realities where you are mourning and poor in spirit and meek and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And the Beatitudes really call us to self-examination. They call us to self-examination. Uh, the, the Bible uh, tells us in, in the letters to the Corinthians, Paul says, test yourself to see if you really are in the faith. Test your, that's a, that's a biblical command. To test yourself to see whether you really are in the faith. And of course, there's such a thing as people constantly testing themselves and constantly taking their own temperature and developing kind of a morbid introspection where they're always looking inside and they get more and more discouraged. They look at themselves inside and some of you are given to that. And so we need to be clear that the Christian life is not constantly bludgeoning and destroying your joy by just noticing that you're not yet perfectly like Jesus. So we don't want to cultivate this kind of morbid introspection. And at the same time, we don't want to disobey this clear command of scripture to test yourself to see whether you really are in the faith. I remember years ago hearing a, a preacher uh, speak about the idea of people deceiving others and even deceiving themselves about the reality of their Christianity. And he said, what is this going to get you if you trick everyone around you? into thinking there are internal realities going on inside you that aren't really there. What will be the fruit of that if you persuade yourself against the evidence that's right in front of your face or you persuade others all around you that you really are in the faith when you're not? What will be the advantage of that? You get to hell and you'll say, they all think I'm in heaven. And it's a horrible thought because the reality is if you're not in the faith, then you're not in the kingdom of heaven. If you're not in the faith, then you're not under the mercy of Christ. If you're not on the way to heaven through Jesus, then you're on the way to hell without Jesus. 
And so it's right and good and, and even should be embraced by Christians to test themselves to see whether they really are in the faith. And if you're here this morning as an unbeliever, I think this should be encouraging to you. I think it should be encouraging to you that Christians ought to test themselves to see whether they really are in the faith because the facts are that there are many unbelievers who are not believers, who refuse to believe Christ precisely because what they've seen in professing Christians. Now, at the end of the day, all of us will stand accountable for our own rebellion. If you refuse Christ, you will stand accountable for your own rebellion to Christ. But the fact is, the dad who went to church all the time and came home and was a tyrant, the mother who went to church all the time and talked about peace like a river, but was a nervous, anxious mess full of anger and manipulation, that father, that mother... That individual has undone the faith of many. Led many to think whatever they've got is not something I want. And so I want to encourage you that it may be that what you've seen, if you're not a believer, what you've seen of Christianity hasn't been Christianity. And that's actually can be good news. If what you've seen of Christianity is actually not poor in spirit and not merciful, it's not uh, peacemaking, it's not pure in heart, it's, it's living a double life, then the very good news is you haven't seen Christianity at all. Because true Christianity does this internal work. It makes a person poor in spirit. It makes a person mourn. It makes a person pure in heart. Progressively for sure, not perfectly in this life, but truly and really and increasingly deeply, this is what true Christianity does. And, and you may be sitting here thinking, well, you know, I, I'm not sure I want to self-examine myself. I'm not sure I want to really look at these things. That sounds uncomfortable. I might find out something I don't want to know. Wouldn't you want to know this side of eternity? So we come to these Beatitudes and we have to let them probe us. We have to let them go down deep. I'll just say, as a person who's walked with Christ 25 some years, as someone who's pastored you 20 years, I have often been far too satisfied with the shallow work of God in my heart. And I have seen you far too satisfied with the shallow work of God in your heart. And the result is that those around us who see it up close wanting no work of God near them at all. Because it's only true Christianity that actually draws others in, is magnetic towards them, and brings them closer and closer in. So when we look at these characteristics, the poverty of spirit, peacemaking, uh, persecution, poor in heart, pure in heart, I got to get that right this morning. When we look at all these characteristics, we have to ask the first question, how were they formed? How does anyone come to a place where this is the reality? They're not trying to look poor in spirit or look like they're mourning or look like they're being persecuted. They're, they are. This is the reality of who Jesus has made them. How, how is that formed in any soul? Now here's something interesting. If you spend your life going, Lord make me merciful, Lord make me merciful, Lord make me hungry for righteousness, it actually 
won't fundamentally change you. I'm not saying you shouldn't pray these individual things and ask God to make them deeper in your life, but the root of all of this character, the root of all of this transformation in the heart is not any of the fruits themselves. How did any people in Jesus' day come to be this way? Come to be in this blessed position? How did they they get formed so that they actually had a poverty of spirit, a gentleness about them. How did that happen? And of course, we find the easiest answer to, to just go back and look and notice how Jesus has interacted with the people he's preaching to here in the Sermon on the Mount. How has he been speaking to them? What has he said? What, what's come into their lives that now they can be described as poor in spirit and they can be described as mourning? What, what has come into their lives? And we see a few different things. If you look back at Matthew chapter 3, verse uh, 2, you see the preaching of John the Baptist and the preaching of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you'll flip ahead maybe a page or in maybe some of your Bibles a column, you'll see in Matthew 4, 17 that this was Jesus' message too. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what's interesting is that these people here in the Beatitudes, these people Jesus is describing, these true Christians, these true Christians that are poor in spirit and merciful and pure in heart, how were they formed? They were first formed by being confronted with their own sin, by being called the repentance. The assumption repentance is that God has a standard, God has a law, God has a truth, and that we have sinned against him. And not just in things we do, but at the very core of our being, at the very essence of who we are. We go the wrong way because we are the wrong way. We're dead in trespasses and sins, says the Apostle Paul. We're we're hating and being hated. Everything in us delights in what's wrong and hates what's good. And so we've had to be confronted with the call to repentance. Now what's amazing is when someone comes up against God's standard, God's holiness, God's law, God's perfect righteousness, and they're told to turn around, what's amazing is that that very hard preaching, that very hard message makes very soft and tender people. That's what happens. When a person is confronted in their rebellion and in their unrighteousness, and John the Baptist and Jesus say, repent, the end result is a poverty of spirit, a meekness, a a gentleness, a hungering and thirsting after righteousness. But there's something more. There's something more that forms these people of the Beatitudes. It's not just a call to repent. It's not just a call to see your sin and turn away from it. There's something else. John the Baptist and Jesus both taught this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that's a phrase that's going to get richer and richer for us as we go through the book of Matthew. We're going to understand that phrase, kingdom of heaven, more and more and more as we go along. But for now, let me say two things about the kingdom of heaven. One, it's the place where God's authority is effective. It's the place where God's authority is effective. 
Jesus the King rules in the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, the people Jesus saves begin to bow their knees to him. They begin to submit to him. But I would do a tremendous disservice if I only described the kingdom of heaven as a kingdom of authority. It's also a kingdom of super abounding life giving grace. It's a kingdom of super abounding life giving grace. And, and we haven't had the full kingdom of heaven unpacked for us in the book of Matthew yet. We're, we're early in the ministry of Jesus. We're early in the gospel of Matthew. We haven't had all of the truths of the gospel explained. But look, look at what we have had about the kingdom of heaven. If you would just look at Matthew chapter 4 and verse 22. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. This is what Jesus is proclaiming. It's good news. It's repent and there's good news. It's not simply repent, you're condemned. It's repent and there's good news. There's the good news of the kingdom of God. And what did this good news look like? Well, it looked like healing every disease and every affliction. And not only healing every disease and affliction, but also if you'll look down to verse 24, loosing the oppression given by demons and disease, it created really all kinds of good news. There was healing for sickness, relief for the suffering, deliverance from demons. Now think about this. Here are people, just like you and me, lost and dead in their trespasses and sins. Here's a people who are, are like sheep without a shepherd, Jesus will say. And what comes into their lives? This message of repent. You must turn. You've broken God's law. Judgment is coming. And here I am, healing and delivering and just showering you with mercy and grace. It reminds me of when Peter was fishing that time. Oh, Peter, the fisherman couldn't catch anything all night. And Jesus, the carpenter, tells Peter, the fisherman, that he should let down his net on the other side of the boat for a catch. Now, if you've ever worked in any kind of construction job, you know how popular it is when one guy from one trade suggests to another guy from another trade how he ought to do his job. Always well received. And so Jesus, the carpenter, says, let down your net for a catch. And Peter lets down his net for a catch, and what comes up is two weeks free vacation. What comes up is multiple paychecks in the net. He's got weeks worth of fish brought into his boat instantly, and he's got this amazing, super abundant, gracious gift from Jesus. And what does he say? Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. This one-two punch of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This gracious, abundant kingdom softens hearts and makes them poor. It makes them meek. It makes them pure in heart. It makes them peacemakers. It gets them into trouble with persecution. Now, you and I have seen so much more than what was revealed in Matthew 4 and 5. 
In Matthew 4 and 5, it's repent and look at all the miracles I'm doing. In Matthew 4 and 5, it's repent and there's good news of the kingdom. But we have seen, by understanding the Bible, by reading the rest of the book of Matthew, that that king goes on to die for sinners. And his number one miracle isn't just healing epilepsy. It's being raised from the dead to show that he conquered and triumphed over death. He died and then he was raised from the dead. This is the kingdom of heaven. The good news of the kingdom is you've sinned. You must repent. And what else? That I have done everything to save you. I've died for you. I've loved you. Now, you may be sitting here going, okay, this is nice. Ryan's first point is awfully simple. Uh, Jesus preaches repentance and Jesus preaches the kingdom of heaven. And, but let me ask you this. And, and you may say, I get that. I know that. I get that. I know that. What a dangerous response. I get that. I know that. Has it made you merciful? Has it made you poor in spirit? Are you habitually gentle? Are you a peacemaker? Losing sleep to keep peace in Christ's church. Beloved, we may know well how to articulate the gospel. We may know well how to understand the good news Jesus brings. But until it's formed the very characteristics of the Beatitudes in our hearts, the work is either non-existent or shallow. And we have to test ourselves. Because there are many who understand the facts of the gospel, the demons being some of them, and have never seen it transform their lives. So the first thing I wanted to say this morning was that when you see these characteristics, poor in spirit, meekness, uh, purity of heart, you need to ask, how does a person get like this? And ironically, you don't just say, make me pure, make me pure, make me merciful, make me merciful. It's by being confronted by God's law and seeing you need to turn all the way around. It's by being confronted by God's grace in the kingdom of heaven and seeing that he is pursuing you to do you good. Those are the things that soften the heart. Those are the things that create this character in God's people. The second thing I want you to notice about the Beatitudes is they really are nothing more than a following Jesus. They really are nothing more than a following Jesus. I was noticing uh, this week that the last words Jesus spoke in the Gospel of Matthew the last words Jesus spoke in the Gospel of Matthew, before he starts giving us the Beatitudes, before the blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, the last words he spoke were, follow me. Follow me. And what's amazing to me as I thought about this is that in every single one of the Beatitudes, you look at it for just a second and you say to yourself, Jesus did this before I ever was called to do this. There's nothing I'm being called to do that Jesus hasn't done already. 
And I'll just tell you this, I find the words follow me so comforting. Because in the course of my Christian life, I've watched some of the most powerful leaders I've ever seen fall into sin. People I've known personally disqualify themselves from ministry. People I've seen God use powerfully be full of fumbling and foibles that really erode your trust in them. And I'm not saying all leaders are hypocrites, but even having worked with really godly men for the entirety of my ministry at Emmanuel, I can say with J.C. Ryle, the best of men are men at best. And anyone who's worked with me for longer than five minutes would want to say the same kind of thing, if not worse. But our faith doesn't rise and fall whether or not this or that leader is deconstructed or apostatized. Whether they've stayed in the ministry. Because our orientation was always to following Jesus. God raises up different leaders at different times for us to follow. And he uses them according to his will. Gives them the gifts they need. Empowers them. Sometimes they turn out to be a total sham. But in the, at the end, we're always to be oriented towards following him. And you walk through the Beatitudes and what do you see? Every single one of them. Jesus exemplifies perfectly. The first one is actually the hardest to square with Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And for us that often meant, look at all my sin. Look at my poverty of spirit. And Jesus had no sin, so how can we talk about him as being poor in spirit? But listen to the way he talked about himself. In John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. You ever think of the ministry of Jesus like that? He, he's not walking, wait, waking up in the morning, man, have I got plans! But there's a conscious reliance on the will of another. He's leaned into someone else's power. He's leaned into someone else's authority all day long, every day. We're following him in his own poverty of spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. How does Isaiah describe Jesus? A man of sorrows, an acquainted with much grief. Every time uh, we see Jesus portrayed popularity, popularly, it seems like one of the most important things people want to show us is that he really did have such an awesome sense of humor. But the scriptures seem intent on making sure we understand something else. That he really was a man of sorrows and acquainted with much grief. Blessed are the meek. Now, meekness is something that leaders love to see in other people. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And we saw last week that gentle and meekness are virtually synonymous. 
And here's Jesus saying, I'm the leader. You, you follow my every word. And you'll find me, you'll find following me to be marked by gentleness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Oh, and again, go through the religions of the world. Watch the historic falls of Christian preachers. What do you see? You see this in Christian politicians. Oh, they're hungry that the nation be marked by righteousness. But they've got something set up with the madame down at the brothel. They've got a gay masseuse that they're visiting even while they're protesting against gay marriage. But Jesus had his own personal hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He gets into the temple. The temple that was meant to be called the house of prayer. And he sees that it's become a basically like the New York Stock Exchange came to church. And he, and he starts flipping tables. Why? Because he, his zeal for his father's house had consumed him. He hungered and thirsted for righteousness. And, and when righteousness meant he had to die, the hunger did not abate. Right? He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All of these beatitudes, they're all a following of Jesus. They, they aren't simply the Lord of glory up on high, sort of pronouncing what we ought to do. They're all a following of him. They're all an entering into his life. And again, we're faced with the reality we started with, that the Christian life is not simply taking on a code of ethics. The, simply, the Christian life is not simply uh, taking on some doctrines. The Christian life is a reality that God produces in the heart. In the same way that God split the sea and move the Israelites through it, he splits our hearts and opens them up and he produces hearts of flesh in us so that we actually long to mourn over our sins, so that we're actually willing and eager to see where we come short and to, and to want more of the life that he's giving. This is what's actually happening when God saves a person and we're to test ourselves to see if we're really in the faith. And there are many now at this point in Emmanuel's history that have grown up here know how to operate here, know how to sort of keep their nose clean here, but don't have the reality we're talking about. Do you long to follow Jesus in poverty of spirit and meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness? The Beatitudes are calling us to follow him. Notice, blessed are the merciful. Who has ever been more merciful than Jesus Christ? I was doing a survey of, these, of all the times mercy is used in Matthew. and Blind men walk up to him, have mercy on us. And other people come around and they go, hey, hey get out of Jesus' way. But Jesus is undeterred by the mercilessness of the crowds. And he's personally motivated to make sure all those in need, whether it's a mother with a demon-possessed child, a blind man who can't see, or praise God, sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sins, Jesus is eager to get the mercy. He's, he's drawn. He's drawn to mine and your sinful weakness. His heart does not recoil away in scorn to the, the absolute shambles you've made in your love, your life. But his heart is drawn towards you in mercy. 
to respond to you in mercy, to say, I, I see the guilt they've incurred. I want to pay that guilt. I see the deadness they're walking in. I want to give them life. I, I see the sickness and disease they're in the midst of, and I either want to sustain them in it or heal them. He's drawn out in mercy. Was there ever a greater peacemaker than Jesus? What's the greatest war in the world? Well, it's not what's brewing up between China and Russia and America. The greatest war in the world is the war between God and man. That we shake our fists at God in unrighteousness and God determines to execute us in righteousness. That we are against all of God's ways with all of our sinful desires and God is against all of our ways with all of his holy desires. We're in enmity. And Jesus literally places himself at the center of the battle. Puts himself on the cross. Dies taking the wrath of God. Having identified his whole life long with sinners. He then comes under the wrath of God. And he ends the enmity between God and man. He makes peace by the blood of his cross. And so literally everything we're being called to in the Beatitudes. Is a reflection of. Jesus, it's a following of Jesus. I probably don't even need to explain the 10th verse, right? Blessed are the persecuted. Is there ever anyone more persecuted than Jesus? Trumped up charges in a kangaroo court, followed by mocking and spitting and crucifixion, the most agonizing form of execution ever known to man. Jesus was persecuted. So the Beatitudes are not something that the Lord of glory on high, who's untouched by our pains, wants us to do. But they are following Him. Every one of them are a following of Him. Now let's, let's keep thinking about this. The Beatitudes are formed by Jesus. His call to repentance. His gracious kingdom of heaven. The more you get that, the more poverty of spirit, the more peacemaking, the more mercy begins to come into your soul from the inside out, the more it's formed in you. And, and honestly, for, for many of us, that point right there should just stop us dead in our tracks and make us say, you know what, no matter what it takes, I need more time alone just meditating on what the gospel is. Because here, here's what I promise you. If you just try to get more merciful or book more mercy into your daytimer, it will not come the way we're talking about. I'm not saying we shouldn't make resolves and concretely plan to do the things Jesus commands. I'm just saying these, these realities are coming from the inside out. They're flowing from the heart. They're realities that Jesus forms in a person. They're, they're part of a new creation. They're part, they're part of a new nature. They're part of what God does in man. God makes men merciful. He makes men peacemakers. He, he forms that in their souls. And he does it by calling them to repentance and showing them the kingdom of heaven. And then all of these, these beatitudes, they're, they're not sort of God in, of glory up on high, pointing down at you, going, shape up. They're, they're Jesus inviting you into his own life. Paul talks about sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. 
the, the Christian life is a, is a participation in someone else's life. It's not simply you doing something for God. It's not simply you sort of trying to, like, like they put dance steps down on the, on the floor and you're trying to do the God-dad's dance steps. That's not like that. It's the actual life of God in the soul of man, as Henry School put it. And then these Beatitudes, what they are when they're formed in us is they really are the fullness of Jesus. They're the fullness of Jesus. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What happens when you're made merciful? Well, it's Christ in you. It's Christ forming you. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Now listen to me. I've seen this in my own soul. I've seen this in this church way too many times. It's so possible to feel you've been overwhelmed by mercy and to turn around and be merciless to the next person you see in sin. There's no greater illustration of this in the Bible that I know than Matthew 18, verse 21 through 35. Matthew 18 through 21 through 35. It's a haunting and an exposing parable. Parable of the unforgiving servant. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. I heard a preacher say one time, if you're doing the math, you miss the point. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts of his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, big money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all they had in payment to be made. So basically, this guy's got a debt so big that his master is going to sell him into slavery along with his wife and kids, and recoup his debt by selling this guy into slavery. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, mercy, compassion, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. I mean, you got to think about what that would have, how would that feel? Me and my wife and my kids were about to be sold down the river into slavery for life. The change they made on us was going to be used to pay off all of my debts. And then I begged and I pleaded and I cried and my master said, forget it. You're forgiven. All your debts are gone. It's absolutely forgiven you. No one's going into slavery. You're free. Your wife's free. Your kids are free. The debt's gone. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, little money. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. Same exact reaction. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay 
the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And you should not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. If you're a Christian... Your testimony about your own life is that you owed God a debt you could never pay. And that the price for your debt couldn't be settled in ages of eternity. That for God to beat out the wrath, the tornado of his wrath on your soul for eternity was the only right and righteous response to your sin. And then, when you cried out, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner, Christ moved in and forgave all of your sin. He, he wiped it all away. He, 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 he washed the record clean. As far as the east is from the west, he removed your debt. That's what we all proclaim. That's what we say. Amen. Until we meet Some other idiot who sins against us. And then all of a sudden we become the unflinching law of God over their soul because God cares so much about righteousness. Think about your own personal relationships. When you're sinned against, is your heart, man, I have been forgiven so much. What would it hurt me to forgive you this little infraction you've committed against me? Think about your cultural engagement. I fear that in this day where every single Christian standard is being destroyed, that our response will actually destroy every bit of our Christian character. That is, that we will learn to disdain and scorn and despise the world. And that we'll never form anyone who's like Jesus, who stood on the edge of Jerusalem weeping. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd, wishing he could gather them in. When was the last time you watched the news and said, I just wish I could gather them all in? It's formed by Jesus. He confronts you in your sin. He bathes you in the kingdom of heaven's grace, miracles, grace, Forgiveness, the cross, resurrection. He forms this in you. He, he, he moves our hearts so that they, they become tenderized by his law and his gospel. And then he, he goes on ahead of us, not just commanding us to be awesome, but himself 
being the only one who's ever been utterly reliant on another, mournful over every sin, a peacemaker who's persecuted. He, he does that. And then what he does is he begins to produce the fullness of his own character in us. We need to be on our knees begging God for those realities. We, we need to be unsatisfied. I've been thinking more and more lately as I think about preaching the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and we're going to get to the, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount with their strong commands and their strong standards. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? These strong commands later on in the Sermon on the Mount and these strong standards, are they not utterly dangerous if they're not held by broken people, merciful people, pure in heart people? There's a reason why the Bible has been used for all kinds of torment and torture in people's lives. Because you can grab a verse here and there and just drive someone with it mercilessly. It's no accident that the Beatitudes are first. There's no, there's no accident that this is, this is the starting point. This is what Christ does in the heart. He makes us pure in heart. See the next one? He forms the fullness of Christness. He makes us Pure in heart. What does it mean to be pure in heart? It means the direction of our life is oriented towards God. It means the love of our life is oriented towards God. We don't lift our hearts up to what is false. And what is filling our heart is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're going to get into this when we get further into the, into the Sermon on the Mount. What do we see when we get there? What do we see when we get further in the Sermon on the Mount? We're going to get told that the thing that characterized the Pharisees was they did all the religious stuff without a pure heart. Right? Do not practice your righteousness for other people in order to be seen by them. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. They're, they're doing religious stuff. They're doing Godward stuff. But it's not for God. There's no purity of heart marking it. When you fast, or let me ask you this, when no one knows you're fasting, do you fast? When no one knows you're praying, do you pray? When no one knows whether you give or not, do you give? This marks out the pure in heart. And God is forming this in us. And if it's not formed in us at all, then we're not saved. There is no other salvation. There isn't a salvation that leaves a man loving the world and loving God. Now, I'm not saying we're not tempted to love the world. I'm not saying we can't drift. But what I'm saying is the dominant Reality of the heart puts away that worldliness and pursues a purity in heart. It also makes us peacemakers. Do you think I am responsible to keep Emmanuel Baptist Church at peace insofar as it depends on me? Now, if that just sounds crippling, like I don't know how to navigate 600 relationships, I get it. That's not what I mean. But where you have responsibility, 
where you know Christians are divided, where you're an offense or where you've been offended and it can't be overlooked. Romans 12, 18 says, insofar as it depends on you. There are some things we can't fix in this life. But insofar as you can, you do. If there's an apology you can make, you make it. If there's a sin to overlook, you overlook it. If there's a grievous reality being hidden that's going to cause cancer to the body, you expose it. But not with a heart to destroy, with a heart to create peace. I remember years ago, a friend coming to me and saying, so-and-so is talking this and that at Emmanuel, and it's really bugging me. And I said, well, you need to go talk to them. They were talking to me like I was the divine um, fire extinguisher for all bad situations in the church. And I told them, you know, the peace at Emmanuel is made up not of the pastors running around, making sure everyone's getting along, but about 10,000 conversations in the body seeking peace. And then blessed are the persecuted. We'll look at that more extensively next week. I want to make just one more comment before I close. We've said that this is the description of Christian character and that the way it's formed is by Jesus, by his preaching of repentance, by his preaching of the kingdom of heaven. It's by further and further understanding his law, and his gospel, his call to turn from our sin and all that he's done for us in grace. The more you know that, the more these characteristics will be formed in you. They'll take root in you. We've been talking about following Jesus, that these aren't just some abstract ideas he threw down. Man, I wish humanity did more of this. He became man and did all these things. He, he, if you look for an example of anything in the Beatitudes, look no further than Jesus. He's the only one who ever did all of them Perfectly. But I also wanted us to notice that when we see these things formed in us, when we become more merciful, when we're less like the unforgiving servant, then what's happening is Christ is being formed in us. We're not just doing certain particular things. Christ is actually alive in us. And I want you to notice, notice how these, these beatitudes, they really have to be a person not just different little realities. Because think of how ugly they are, isolated. Right? What do you, what, would you describe a merciless person who gets persecuted as Christ-like? I mean, Christians aren't the only persecuted people in the world, right? You know this. Christian persecution is distinct. It's different. We get persecuted while we're trying to make peace with everybody. Do you see them together? Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted. So the persecution that comes to us isn't while we're being punks and pugnacious. It isn't while we're being the most caustic people around. It's while we're trying to bring people to reconciliation to God. It's while we're trying to guard our own families and our roommates and our friends in relationships of peace. It's while we're trying to care for the peace of the church. We're trying to make peace. And in the midst of all that peacemaking, the world hates it. The, the mercy that's called for here. The mercy that's called for here. It would be awful if it wasn't wed to a hungering and thirsting after righteousness. 
Right? There's a kind of loving mercy that just sort of, as Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, it's just sort of flabby. It's just sort of like letting things go. It's just sort of sweeping things under the carpet. We call it merciful, just not getting too worked up. But, but the kind of mercy being described here is not that kind of mercy. That's not mercy at all. It's, there's a hunger and a thirst for what is right. And then even in the midst of that hungering and thirsting for right, I've been forgiven so much. I can extend mercy. This is a beautiful character. This, this is the most beautiful thing that could ever happen in your soul. This is the most beautiful thing that could ever happen in our church. This is the most stunning and beautiful thing that we could ever offer to the world. Hearts that were so set on peacemaking, they were persecuted. Hearts that were ravenous for holiness and righteousness, and yet utterly merciful. These are things the world cannot bring together. Absolute poverty of spirit. I've got nothing, but what I do have is a purity of heart that must be driven towards God, that wants to see God. This is Christ in us. This is the most glorious thing that can ever happen in the church. You say, what's going to happen at Emmanuel in the coming years? What are our plans? I'd like to see Jesus. I'd like to see me and us more fully formed into the character of Christ. I don't want to spend my sermon from a week or two from now, but when, when Jesus will go on to say, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the earth, people are going to come to you as salt and light, they're going to be drawn to you. He doesn't lay out a plan for cultural transformation. He doesn't lay out a plan for how you seize the centers of power in the world. He forms character. He forms himself. He makes himself in a people. When he is formed in a people, that people salts and lights the earth this is the way it works this is the only way it works it always backfires if you don't work it this way we must be formed into Christ and that's not a self-improvement project that's hearing his call to repentance that's hearing his bountiful gracious kingdom of heaven that comes to heal us and save us and redeem us it's in hearing those things and seeing his example that we are formed and changed and we see him and we become like him. And the more we see him and we become like him, then the more we begin to put the fullness of him on display in all we do. And that's the goal, that Christ might be all and all in everything to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we beg you to form Christ in us. Lord, forgive us for pride of spirit, for glibness in our souls, for haughtiness instead of meekness and harshness instead of meekness, for hungering and thirsting after the world rather than hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Lord, forgive us for being merciless, divided in heart, dividers of men, and evading persecution at all costs. Lord, make us like you. We pray that you do it in Jesus' name, by your spirit. Amen.